Kalger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute of Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. Each year, the director of PRIO shares his Nobel shortlist. These are potential candidates he thinks would be worthy of the Nobel Peace Prize. This year's winner will be announced on Friday, October 8th, in one week. In the meantime, today you'll get to hear from Henrik Erdahl about who he picked for his list this year, and then from five PRIO researchers and research assistants who will share their thoughts on each candidate. Here we are again, Henrik, one year later, a new Nobel shortlist to discuss. Very exciting. Um, and thank you for joining me in your busy schedule. Thank you for having me, Indigo. So let's just start. We won't leave people in suspense. Let's just start with what is on your list this year at this time, because of course you have updated it since January. I have updated my list, and uh, we have a few uh, we think are worthy winners and front runners. So uh, on top of my list, is Reporters Without Borders. I hope that we will see a media prize uh, this year. Um, the uh, Reporters Without Borders uh, is an NGO uh, based in Paris, and they're working to uh, underscore the importance of independent journalism for uh, democratic governance. This also has a direct link to armed conflict and, and to the peace prize, in the sense that uh, the uh, Reporters Without Borders uh, is an organization that's also focusing on the important work that journalists are doing uh, in war zones uh, all over the world and the importance of independent reporting coming out of conflict zones as a, as a key um, information uh, to, the, uh, to the public international. And then we have a number of other candidates that I think would be um, uh, exceptionally good uh, winners of the Peace Prize. Uh, we have a number of human rights defenders on our list this year. Uh, second place, uh, Svetlana Tikhanushkaya, who's the leading uh, Belarus opposition leader, uh, working nonviolently to uh, to challenge the um, government of Alexander Lukashenko. Um, so, so that would certainly be a prize that would uh, be welcome and also a bit of a warning uh, to uh, to uh, autocratic uh, governments and, and autocratic politicians uh, everywhere in the world. Mm. We have um, B'Tselem and the Palestinian Center for Human Rights. Uh, in the absence of any sort of real progress on the uh, peace, pri- the peace um, uh, process in, in the Palestinian areas, uh, focusing on two NGOs working to document and communicate about uh, human rights breaches in the Palestinian areas, I think would be very appropriate. And then we have a prize to human rights defenders uh, in uh, in China, uh, Ilham Toti, uh, who's an Uyghur, who's been focusing on uh, the uh, on human rights breaches in the uh, Xinjiang uh, province in, uh, in China. Uh, and also Nathan Law, uh, Kun Chung, uh, who's uh, a leader of the uh, Hong Kong umbrella revolution uh, and uh, a young uh, activist working uh, now to to focus on the uh, consequences of the uh, uh, Hong Kong national security law that was introduced uh, in June uh, 2020. And then we have, uh, I think it's particularly appropriate this year to underscore also that uh, following the announcement of and launch of the IPCC's sixth uh, assessment report on, on climate change, that 
even though we uh, cannot say with any great certainty that there is a direct link between climate change and armed conflict, uh, climate change is certainly a major, major human security risk. And uh, if the if the committee would want to uh, honor that important work that the uh, organizations uh, working uh, to uh, reduce the impact of climate change are doing, uh, focusing on organizations like the um, UN um, uh, FCCC, uh, working uh, to uh, establish sort of the practically organizing the negotiations over uh, climate change, and its executive uh, secretary Patricia Espinosa. That's a way, in many ways, to honor uh, Nobel's will, focusing on uh, the importance of, uh, of building fraternity among nations in the face of what is a, a pressing global threat. So this is a very impressive list, and it, it repeats some of the themes that we've seen in the last few years. We are going to hear from five different researchers at PRIO after this segment, and they're going to get a little bit more into it. Uh, I think for the most part, they agree with uh, your picks. I don't think it's too controversial, but... It'll be nice to hear a little bit more from them. Um, but for now, I want to ask you a little bit about this list in general and also the speculation aspect. This is something we talk about every year. Um, every single year there is betting on who will win the Peace Prize. There's a lot of speculation. Uh, we don't like to call this list speculation. We like to call it um, uh, worthy candidates that, that you think would deserve the prize, theoretically. Um, who is speculated to win this year? It seems like there's not been so much chatter as there usually is. No, uh, the uh, the speculations in, in most recent years have been uh, that uh, that both Trump and and Black Lives Matter and and Jacinda Ardern in, in New Zealand and, and other sort of high profile candidates would uh, would get the prize. That's often not the case. Uh, the the Nobel Committee, I think, have uh, made good picks in in recent years, and it's important to for me to underscore that. that of course, the purpose of of uh, Prio making this list and and I'm engaging in this discussion is that we want to focus on on what we think are the most worthy candidates, and of course, our starting point is one of uh, of uh, which is research based. So, so we're trying to point to different areas. Uh, rather than uh, than uh, uh, engaging in, in speculations about the most likely one, so so some of the candidates uh, on my list are, are not necessarily the most likely uh, candidates. But I want to say also in uh, that in in recent years, uh, many um, of the winners have been on the on the pre list of uh, of candidates one year or or more year. Uh, Dennis Pequega uh, was on our list six times before he got the prize. So. In many ways, you can say that Prio is sometimes ahead of the game uh, and the head of the committee. But also the World Food Program, Abiy Ahmed, um, Nadi Murad, uh, Santos and, and Manala have been regulars on the Prio lists. Uh, so we, we've picked many of the of the winners, although not necessarily in the same year as the as the committee. And then the, the purpose of uh, of um, of engaging in this is, of course, uh, to inspire a debate about what peace is and what what worthy contributions uh, are. Uh, we've seen developments in in the domain of the prize, and and uh, uh, you know the committee has uh, extended in many ways uh, the prize from being a more sort of conventional prize to include human rights. We had the prize to uh, IPCC and and uh, Al Gore. We've had uh, an environmental prize to Matai. Um, we had uh, we had the prize to Yusuf for uh, for micro uh, banking, uh, so for for economic development and 
there's also the uh, the uh, of course the, the the global shift in attention from from being a prize which was uh, mainly for for a while uh, for white uh, European males to one that uh, that has actually seen candidates from all over the world uh, being awarded for import, different important uh, uh, domains and um, I think it's fair to say that we don't necessarily have a very clear front runner uh, this year. Um, we uh, we have uh, seen no sort of major breakthroughs in conventional uh, prize domains, so no peace process that has been finalized um no sufficiently i think uh, promising process that the committee would do as they did with uh, with ethiopia and, and abi ahmed two years ago to award it uh, for a process that was underway uh, so i think we can see perhaps this year that we'll we'll get a prize in a uh, in in the category of a uh, sort of a long uh, and an important uh, contribution to to something that most of us will recognize our important uh, ways to peace and, and uh, as I said uh, journalism and and uh, contributions to uh, to focusing on uh, the importance of uh, countering you know fake news narratives and uh, and engaging uh, in uh, producing knowledge uh, I think would be uh, I think this this year would be a particularly good year for for such a prize. In closing, I want to talk about the pandemic because I think some people will feel it's a bit of a glaring omission that there are no uh, pandemic-related candidates on your list. Um, Of course, some people have mentioned the WHO, but on your first list from January this year, you did have COVAX. Uh, Why did you end up taking that off? So COVAX is the uh, is uh, is a collaboration between WHO and Gavi and a few others uh, working to uh, secure an equitable uh, distribution of vaccines globally, and I think that would uh, have been a very worthy uh, contribution and 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 really speaking to some you know key aspects of uh, of Nobel's uh, will and especially uh, the uh, the the point about fraternity uh, between nations and and uh, building. Uh, sort of multilateral solutions but the the um i think the it's the the contribution of uh, of covax as uh, as an end sort of a uh, an attempt at getting at uh, at this what is a glaring global uh, inequality in uh, in vaccine access has simply not been sufficiently successful uh, we're seeing, you know, populations in Norway, in uh, in European countries, in the U.S. being close to fully vaccinated at the same time as uh, as you know the current rate of vaccination in sub-Saharan Africa is around four uh, percent. So, uh, had Covax been successful, I think it would have been an obvious candidate. Uh, we may see a prize in medicine for uh, for um, uh, vaccine producers and, and developers. But I don't see that uh, the contributions by WHO and by COVAX and, and the other candidates uh, are uh, have have been have progressed sufficiently at this point uh, that it could be uh, worthy of a Nobel Peace Prize. Thank you very much, Henrik. I'm looking forward to hearing what the researchers have to say about your list, and we will see who ends up winning uh, on October eighth. Thank you very much, Indigo. I'm very excited about this too. Welcome to the podcast, Maria. Uh, well, welcome back, I should say. Uh, Maria Gabrielson Jobert, you're the research director of Dimensions of Security here at Prio and a senior researcher. Um, and you have previously talked more with me about um, 
EU border security and migration and, um, and more security related topics. But today we're going to go back to one of your other interests, which is um, media, freedom of the press, um, journalism. And that's because Henrik has put Reporters Without Borders at the top of his shortlist. And this has been a theme and a topic that he has reiterated a few times in the last couple of years. And I think it's very close to his heart. So why don't you just start with telling us about what RSF uh, is and what they do? Yes, so RSF is a uh, NGO uh, based in Paris. They were established in 1985, um, and they're now present in 14 different countries across the globe uh, and have like uh, over 100 correspondents uh, based in different uh, regions of the world. Uh, they, they work as a sort of... Uh, federation of different organizations also working for the freedom of the press. So their main uh, goal is to work for the freedom of the press. And, uh, and within that is to, a lot of their work is, is uh, precisely to work for the safety of journalists, the safety of journalists' sources as well, but, but also more generally the, the freedom of expression. And what would a prize like this signal if uh, organization either rsf itself or similar organization um, won what would that signal i think it would signal a lot of important uh, issues of concern these days i think that um a price to uh, we can also take uh, go back a little bit to to their core mission so they they often refer to the freedom of expression as the the, the first of all uh, different kinds of freedoms mm. uh, by by sort of referring to um, they they had this on their web page asking rhetorically how can we combat the the massacre of civilians how can we work to protect women's rights uh, to uh, preserve the environment uh, um, defend the rights of child soldiers etc if uh, we don't have uh, journalists who are free to report uh, and to um, to get the facts out there and to uh, yeah to, to challenge our general consciousness in a way, and they even refer to the freedom uh, of expression and the um, the right to inform and the right to be informed as uh, as being enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So I think that this calls on sort of the importance, the core importance of the f of freedom to inform and the freedom to be informed as as sort of at the core of a lot of. The, the different um, issues of global justice, of peace, uh, that, that, yeah, that sort of cross, uh, uh, that cut across a lot of the different uh, topics that, that uh, the Nobel Peace Prize also seek to, to shed light on. Mm, and re reporters and um, research kind of go hand in hand. In a lot of cases, there are several projects at PRIO that rely on journalists reporting in order to get the data that we need. Um, not least, for example, to count battle deaths. Um, so, I mean, this is also very, very close, I think, to kind of the work that we do here. Uh, it sounds like you really would support a prize like this. Uh, do you think that it, the time is ripe for a prize that, uh, related to journalism? Yes, I would say that the time has been ripe for <laughs> for a, an organization like Reporters Without Borders for, for quite some time already. But if we look at the past year or two, I would perhaps highlight three different events that I think really underscore the importance of the work that uh, RSF is doing and the values that they are championing. Uh, and, and the first, in a way, if we can call it an event, or is is the what is the in a way the Trump era 
where we saw the both the power of but also the dangers involved in misinformation and the lack of trust in in information when people sort of yeah seek their own <laughs> in the sources of information um and which culminated in in uh, in trump challenging the outcome of the elections uh, last year um and then uh, the second major global event is the, of course the pandemic which has also underscored the importance of truthful fact-based information but also the importance of people trusting uh, information that they receive um so so i think we have really seen that also with the pandemic we see it also still with uh, information circulating around vaccines and then finally uh, the the last more recent development uh, is uh, is the last events uh, in um, in afghanistan uh, where which also underscores um the importance of the safety of journalists so really also very close to rsf's uh, what has been a core activity of rsf over the last couple of years uh, and there both the uh, of the safety of international journalists reporting to an international audience about the the events unfolding in afghanistan but of course very much also the safety of of uh, um afghan journalists and and their ability to to continue to report freely on developments in Afghanistan. So I think th- there are three major uh, recent events there that that could uh, call for our attention to be brought to the kind of work that RSF is doing. Mm. Thank you so much Maria. Um I look forward to seeing who the prize goes to and I really appreciate hearing a little bit more about this organization and this topic from you. So thanks. Thanks a lot Indigo. Also excited to hear what the result will be. Welcome to the podcast, Karina. Karina Strom-Smith, you are a research assistant at Prio and you're um, coordinating the MODE project that's mobilizing for and against democracy. Um, so you're, you're both coding and um, coordinating a lot of, of data coding and collection. Um, today, you're going to comment a little bit on Henrik's pick for the shortlist, Svetlana Chikonoskaya. Who is this person and, and what is the significance of this pick? So thank you for having me. Uh, Svetlana Chikonovskaya is the opposition leader, you could call her, in Belarus. Uh, she is currently in voluntary exile from her home country and has been since August of last year when a general presidential election took place in the country. Uh, Chikonovskaya is married to a man called Sergei Chikonovsky, who's a well-known uh, blogger and pro-democracy activist who was initially running for president in Belarus, but was arrested by the authorities in May of last year. So she basically jumped in and took his place. Uh, While a lot of political candidates or nominees were not accepted, she was allowed to go ahead, most likely, uh, it said, because uh, Alexander Lukashenko didn't really see her as any sort of challenge. He's been very vocal about the fact that he cannot see um, Belarus as ready for a female leader. So... He was, uh, and many were taken by surprise when she ended up leading what became quite a big peaceful mass mobilization protest movement, uh, first in support of uh, her campaign. And after the election results came in and Lukashenko turned out to have won 80% of the vote, 
against the election results, which mm. it has uh, generally been agreed by international um, uh, spectators were rigged. Now, she has been in exile in Lithuania since this point is set, and she's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by the Lithuanian president. There have been attempts to get her extradited as well because she's been doing quite a lot of work traveling around to different countries, talking about the pro-democracy movement in Belarus um, to leaders of other states. Uh, and the Lithuanian leadership have basically said that they would rather see hell over, <laughs> hell freeze over, sorry, than uh, hand her back to Belarus. Wow. And I mean, what would be the significance of a prize to someone like this? Um, Henrik, in the in the text that he wrote, um, which people can read on the website, he did mention a couple of alternatives um, because she's one of three women that make up the women's triumvirate of the Belarusian pro-democracy movement. But I mean, what would be the significance of a prize to someone like Svetlana Chekhanushkia? What would it signal to the international community? To the international community, so I, I think it would mean different things to the pe- to the Belarusian people and to the international community. Belarus is uh, often referred to as the last dictatorship in Europe. Hmm. Um, the fact that uh, somebody, anybody really could take over from Lukashenko, who has uh, worked a lot to get his uh, presidential terms uh, expanded and expanded, uh, would be important in itself, because he's worked very hard to make sure that he won't be removed. So... The fact that anyone could, and specifically a woman, would be a very uh, strong signal both to Europe and to the rest of the world that democratic change can take place at that level and that it's possible. Inside Belarus, there is also the additional um, point that she's not really the sort of person that is perceived as a leader. Like She's not a great speaker or orator. She is really soft-spoken and she seems very approachable. So she's become this figure that people see as somebody likable, I guess just the exact opposite of Lukashenko, who represents uh, a Belarus that could be. You mentioned these two other women as well, Maria Kolesnikova and Veronika Tsapkala. Sorry if I get those names wrong, it can be a little bit of a challenge. Um, They have also been very active in the pro-democracy movement in Belarus, and their nominations are, of course, important as well. Um, So that she and that they get this uh, recognition uh, in general is important. And uh, yeah, sorry. No, that's great. Uh, for my final question, I just want to ask you, because of course you are working on the Mobilizing for and Against Democracy project, so you probably see this in, in a wider context, but in terms of pro-democracy mass mobilization and protest movements, it seems in the last few years that there have been, if not more, at least that they've gotten much more attention. Can you just comment on the wider context of a nomination like this at this time? That's an interesting point, because there have definitely been waves of mass mobilization events, peaceful protests, both around the world and in Europe. And in Europe, you might specifically think of then the um, ex-Soviet states, of which Belarus is one. Um, demonstrations against Lukashenko happened at a very early point. They started happening in 1996, when the first time he tried to expand his term. And that was, um, as far as I can remember, the biggest uh, mass mobilization event against him. There's been... Uh, a steady stream of demonstrations since 
94, 96, when Lukashenko first came into power. But you can see that the amount of people who've participated in these have diminished. Around 2010, 2011, at the same time as the Arab Spring was going on, um, mobilization also took place against Lukashenko in Belarus um, of the Facebook uh, organized type, more like flat mobilization structures. What's happening right now um, seems to be something that's um, also being highlighted by different state leaders and particularly autocratic state leaders' response to larger problems, international problems like COVID-19, for example, which Lukashenko did not take seriously whatsoever. He is quoted as saying stuff like just drink vodka and sit in the sauna or eat cheese. So <laughs> that's helped uh, motivate a lot of uh, Belarusians uh, to finally say maybe it is time that we do rise up against this regime, even though there is a considerable chance of being persecuted uh, by the state police if you mobilise against the regime in any way in Belarus. Um, but yes, I... Thank you so much, Karina, and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, who does win the prize next week. Uh, in the meantime, I hope people will look into the Mode Project and also learn a little bit more about um, this mass movement. So thank you. It'll be very interesting to see what happens. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast, Jonas. You are a senior researcher at Prio, and you're going to comment on one of Hendrik's picks uh, for the Peace Prize shortlist. UNFCCC and Patricia Espinoza. Can you start by just telling us um, what is the UNFCCC and who is Patricia Espinoza? Yeah, so the UNFCCC is the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. It was signed during the Earth Summit at uh, Rio in 1992 um, uh, with the aim of preventing dangerous human interference with climate uh, with the climate system. And Patricia Espinoza is the current executive secretary and been so for the last five years. What do you think of this pick from Henrik? Uh, okay, so I think uh, that it would be extremely problematic to give <laughs> give the peace prize to the UNFCCC, and that is not to take away the work being done by the UNFCCC uh, um, to facilitate international climate change negotiations. Um, um, I think these negotiations are, of course, necessary to minimize climate change and its damages. Um, but I think. Uh, that the work they're doing is just excruciatingly slow. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, I mean, it was 1981 where uh, James Hansen and et al. published Climate Impact of Increasing Atmospheric Carbon Dioxide. That's 40 years since today. Mm. Um, and uh, so we have agreed on the UNFCCC, the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement. Uh, but uh, all of those are mainly agreements to discuss climate change uh, in international, in intergovernmental uh, negotiations, to monitor national emissions and to make nationally determined plans for reducing uh, emissions, but not actually reducing them. <laughs> and we see that globally emissions are still going up, although the COVID-19 did uh, make a small dent in the, in the, uh, in the carbon uh, emissions globally. Um, yeah, so, so, uh, so if we just look at what they have actually managed to achieve, uh, I think it would be premature to actually give it uh, on, on, on that uh, ground. 
and uh, of course we could discuss whether climate change will have anything to do with uh, uh, peace and conflict but i mean if they're not able to actually solve climate change then i think don't think they would be worthy of that uh, in any case um of the price any any case um but i do think that uh, in the nobel prize there's this um uh, uh this condition that you, that you could give it for holding and pr uh, promoting peace congresses and and to some extent you could argue that uh, the UNFCCC is holding and promoting peace congresses um, I think that's a would be a reasonable argument I mean the whole UN system is a institutionalized peace congress mm. um, but I think also then to look at the um, at the, the conference of parties uh, that the UNFCC is uh, holding now in Glasgow now, for instance, in a couple of weeks, uh, to to view that as a as a um, as a peace congress would be, I think, both reductionistic and anthropocentric uh, because the the climate issue is just much broader than uh, only about peace. Uh, because of course, yes, consequences of climate extremes will be worse during conflicts. Uh, climate extremes are likely to further exacerbate conditions for those living with violent conflict. Climate extremes might also be conflict triggers under certain conditions, and climate change is bound to strain national security capacities and make it more difficult for poor countries to develop. Um, and I think also in the long run, not solving climate change is very likely to produce difficult situations nationally and internationally such as having whole island nations becoming refugees uh, due to rising sea levels um, but that being said climate change will affect all not just populations in conflict uh, and not just human life but all life and I don't, I'm not comfortable reducing the conference of parties to a peace congress um, um, yeah uh this is all very interesting, and, and I really appreciate your nuanced reflections on this. When you said it was problematic, I found that also quite an interesting choice of words because uh, a lot of times when people get prizes, they're sort of aspirational. Now people have criticized that uh, form of a prize when it has been as sort of aspirational, and the committee has acknowledged when that has been the case. Sometimes they've said it's sort of an encouragement or encouragement for work that's in progress. Do you think that there's no worth in, in awarding a prize to an organization like this because so little progress has been made? Um, or what are your thoughts on that? I think it would be very easy to criticize uh, the prize on that ground. Yeah. Um, but I, I think also the, the point that, well, it, it's aspirational, but, but it would be also highlighting parts of the issue that is... Um, not necessarily the most important part of the issue. Um, uh, so I think um, looking at uh, climate change as something that will mainly affect vulnerable populations uh, across the globe um, uh, and and all life uh, as we know it, uh, that is a much. I think that's a much more correct way to to frame this issue than than as a kind of narrow security issue i think it, it is that too uh but uh when we go into the conference of parties uh, of the parties in a couple of weeks 
only having this security dimension in our heads and, and also uh, highlighting that part of the issue, uh, I think is problematic. Um, also because I think what we need now is just a lot of investments and optimi optimism that we can actually do this, that we can, that, that uh, I mean, if, if we look at uh, where we are seeing the big uh, changes and where we do see optimism, I would, I would point to private markets and to, to development, uh, research and development, hmm. and, and not on what governments are doing. Uh, so, uh, so I think it would highlight uh, the, the parts of the issue that is most difficult to solve and where we see less, less action. And, uh, and that would come at the expense of where we actually do see uh, a lot of uh, action and positive responses to the crisis we see now. Thank you so much, Jonas. Welcome back to the podcast, Jürgen. You are a senior researcher at Prio, and you have been on the podcast many times. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on Henrik's pick for uh, the Peace Prize, or, well, one of his shortlist candidates. Um, and he, he paired two candidates, which he often does. And in this case, it was Betselem and the Palestinian Center for Human Rights. What would this prize mean if, if these organizations or similar won? So uh, I, I think first I should just say that I'm not sort of optimistic on their behalf. That doesn't mean I disagree that they deserve a prize. Um, uh, but I think just, uh, you know, the, the attention to Israel-Palestine has really uh, disappeared over these years. Um, and, and the reason for that is because the, the peace process and, you know, all sorts of the things we could think of as positive developments have really disappeared. So, you know, the, the settlement expansion on the Israeli side, the debate about annexation on the Israeli side, the total loss of interest in any peace process on the Israeli side, and on the Palestinian side, the, the split between Hamas and Fatah, between the West Bank and Gaza, uh, the, the lack of uh, elections. All this means basically that there is no positive movement in that sense and and the conflict has really reached a dead end but in the midst of all of this there's still tons of breaches of human rights um and and it's really important that we have watchdogs on the ground uh recording these uh, bringing it to our attention uh and uh, by extension hopefully making sure that there are fewer of them so when he paired these two organizations um the Palestinian Center is, of course, Palestinian. Um, B'Tselem is Israeli. Can you tell us a little bit more about B'Tselem and the work that they do? Because I think this is an interesting pairing. Yeah. So, you know, both of them are are active organizations that are are rather, um, you know, uh, clear for for onlookers. But B'Tselem is the, is the most prominent of the two, um, and. What they have mostly done is, is stuff like uh, collect the data over the settlements, you know, how many there are, how many live in them, where they are, uh, etc. Because the, the settlements are really detrimental to, to any viable two-state solution or, or a peace process. Uh, but they also document all sorts of human rights. They have, you know, people on the ground with, uh, with video cameras um, uh, and they write uh, reports. Uh, they testify to the UN. Um, basically, they're a very important uh, watchdog. Um, but Selem has also become very controversial in Israel. Now, there are several explanations for this. One is that there has been a, a really far 
you know, rightward turn in, in Israel. Um, and many label B'Tselem as, as traitors, basically. Um, you know, I've, I've uh, not personally, but, but students of mine who were on a trip in, in uh, Israel, when they took a taxi to the B'Tselem office, the taxi driver said, why do you want to meet these traitors? Um, so, so I think this is a rather prevalent view among certain groups of, of uh, Israeli society. Um, but this year they really went into deep water because they have gone from basically just talking about the occupied territories. Uh, but to this year they, they launched a, a report saying that Israel is now an apartheid state. Um, and this really put them in the spotlight because then you're, they're not only criticizing the occupation as, as a structure, as an event that takes part you know, within the occupied territories, but that's a critique of um, the whole of Israel as it has become. Wow. So this would make quite a splash if uh, if a prize went to one or both of these um, organizations. Just in closing, can we take a quick historical perspective? There have been um, other prizes, that, yeah, related to Israel and Palestine. Do you feel that there has made any difference when those prizes have been awarded, or is it kind of more of a gesture or a signal of hope from the committee? Well, so there are two main rounds where a peace prize has been awarded to at least Israel, uh, if not the Palestinians. Uh, the second one was to the Palestinians as well. So the first one was to uh, Menachem Begin and, and uh, Anwar Sadat in 1978 for the Camp David Accords. Uh, and at the time, at least uh, Jimmy Carter uh, was still hoping that this would develop into something for the Palestinians. It did not. Um, and, it, you know, in many ways, that was sort of a celebration of, of a peace treaty that or what became a peace treaty that excluded the Palestinians. So in that regard, I would, I would say no. Uh, the second one, which went to uh, Rabin Peres and Arafat for the Oslo Treaty, that happened in the midst of this momentum. Um, and it's really hard to say, you know, what could have happened because all these events took place. Uh, Rabin was killed. Uh, the suicide attack started. The massacre in, in Hebron, perpetrated by an extremist uh, Jewish settler. Um, and then all of, you know, these things spiral out of control and the peace process died. Um, but I think at that moment... I think it was a useful push forward. Um, obviously, it wasn't enough, as we know today. But uh, it's it's kind of hard to say, you know, when a peace process works. Is it is it uh, you know early in the process to like give an impetus to keep going? Uh, is it uh, a reward for something uh, achieved, like at the end of a process? Uh, it's hard to say. So the second category would, of course, be less uh, risky, but you're not really adding anything. Uh, the first version where you're like giving momentum to movement, um, you know, that's more risky, but you might not achieve anything at all. And then it looks bad in hindsight. Thank you very much, Jürgen. Thanks for coming to the podcast, Amalia. Amalia Nilsson, you're a research assistant at PRIO. Um, you're working on the project Mobilizing for and Against Democracy, and uh, your master's focused on uh, pre-election protests and voter behavior in Hong Kong. Um, and that's why you're here today, because one of Henrik's picks for the shortlist um, 
was Nathan Law Quanchung and also Ilam Toti. He paired these two possible candidates. So let's just start with you telling us a little bit about who these people are. Yes, thank you for having me in the go. Uh, so we can start with Nathan Law. He is a 20-year-old Hong Kong politician and also a pro-democracy activist. Uh, he was one of the leaders of the 2014 Umbrella Movement in Hong Kong, and he was also the youngest elected uh, legislator in Hong Kong after the 2016 election. But he got disqualified and also jailed for his uh, involvement in the movement. And he was also a prominent figure in the 2019 protests together with Joshua Wong and uh, Agnes Scholl. And he is currently in exile in uh, London after Beijing imposed this new security law on Hong Kong. Uh, so he is on uh, Beijing's wanted list for his uh, advocacy for human rights and uh, uh, democracy. Ilan Toti is a human rights activist in uh, China, uh, but we haven't actually heard from him in seven years, uh, and he's fighting for the rights of the Uyghurs in China. Yes, and um, his his daughter has really taken up his cause and is advocating and speaking on his behalf. Let's focus in on Hong Kong since that's your your area of expertise. Of course, most people I hope would have heard about. Um, at least peripherally about the the protests in Hong Kong and especially over the last couple of years, of course, with the pandemic, they did peter out quite a bit. Um, why would a prize be significant? Oftentimes, a, a Nobel Peace Prize is aspirational. Um, sometimes it's a sort of an encouragement. Um, what would this mean both for China and and for the people who are protesting but also for the international community what would this signal well i don't think the price could have been more timely uh we are living in a world when china is uh, rising as a global superpower so giving the peace prize to nathan law or ilan toti uh, someone who opposed the chinese government would send a clear message that the international society does not accept the human rights abuses in China, and also the threat that China poses to democracy. So, um, yeah, I also think it sends a clear signal that the international society actually stands up for those who are opposing these regimes, even though it's a great risk. Uh, we know that uh, hundreds of those in Hong Kong are in prison now and in exile, as uh, Nathan Law. So I think it's an important message that we send that even though fighting for democracy can sometimes be a long and demanding task, uh, the international society actually stands up for those who do so. But I also think it's important to mention that uh, the decline in democracy is not only relevant for China. We observe that all over the world from European countries such as Poland and Hungary, but also in the US during the Trump administration. So I think that uh, giving the peace prize to someone who fights for democracy sent a very clear signal uh, of the importance of democracy to the rest of the world. And I also think it's uh, important to recognize young people uh, participating in peace processes and recognize the potential they have to contribute to a more just and more peaceful future. 
And yeah, we know that the democracy movement in Hong Kong failed, but it's still important to signal that yeah, the international society stands up for those who are fighting, even though it's a hard and long fight sometimes. In closing, I would love to hear your thoughts on what kind of effect this could have politically, uh, because Norway previously got a lot of flack when a prize was awarded to Liu Xiaobo. Now, we should say that the committee is is not um, connected to the Norwegian government. The committee doesn't stand for the Norwegian government, but it was perceived as Norway criticizing China. And this had economic and political effects um, for many years and Norway was sort of frozen out uh, of China for for several years um, so I'm just wondering what you think of a prize what a prize like this could do now in in the time we're living in yeah I definitely see your point it's um, yeah as you said the uh, committee is not dependent of the Norwegian government or it's an independent uh, committee but it's still the prize is still uh, given from a committee elected in Norway. Uh, so, uh, but my personal opinion is that we shouldn't worry too much. Uh, it's difficult for Norway to stand up against China alone, but um, if European countries or the US comes together and actually do so, it's uh, at one point, China can't suddenly boycott all of them. Uh, but yeah, I understand that it's difficult for Norway to do that alone, but I think it's, um, an important message to send that we can cooperate with China economically, but still being critical of the human rights abuses going on there. Thank you so much, Amalia. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in for more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trick Hacker. Music by Mark Denham.